If truth is what you seek, then the examined life will only take you on a long ride to the limits of solitude and leave you by the side of the road with your truth and nothing else as you wait to embrace the void. you to exist anywhere. I want everyone corrupt. Leaves from the vine falling so slow. Sometimes, Master, it is difficult for meatbags to step back and gain some perspective on death and its importance in their insignificant lives. I don't know if I'm up for this. I'm so emotional. I can barely think straight. Great. Use that. Embrace the void. Warning. This podcast contains foul language, dark invocations, and treating women like their people. Welcome, friends, to episode 199 of Embrace the Void, where we oscillate wildly before settling on cheerful fatalism. I am your host, Aaron, and this week we've got a fun chat on veteran voidiness, so let's fall out. Life ends in death, which we, as a species, are cursed with knowing, resulting in... something. My guests this week are Jim and Alex, co-hosts of the Pillow Scream radio podcast. Gentlemen, would you like to say hi to the void? Hello, void. <laughs> Hello, void. Hello, darkness, <laughs> my old friend. Yeah, I was, um, uh, thanks for coming on. I really appreciate y'all reaching out. It sounds like we had a lot of shared interests, and I was listening to the first episode of your podcast. The frequency with which y'all just referenced um, shouting into the void, I think, suggests that we... We do have a lot of common ground here. Yeah. If someone uses the word void, like they're one of us. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's kind of how it is. Like they know what it means. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's actually the the impetus behind our Pillow Scream Radio podcast name is we originally, we we're going to call it Meat Sounds, right? That's what we we're going to call it at the yeah. very beginning. <laughs> yeah. If anyone's watched yeah. that YouTube video of the aliens, they're just flapping their meat. Yes. Uh, so and, yeah. uh, a big... A big um, the big one for our philosophers in space group who like um, any forms of substrate chauvinism they can get their hands on. <laughs> yeah, there we go. And uh, of course, we gravitated to that, but it was taken. Mm-hmm. So we had to yes. figure out some other way to name our podcast. We were void screamers or uh, pillow scream or whatever it was, because we really just felt like we were frustrated all of the time and needed some kind of outlet Mm -hmm. through which to express our frustrations like you're screaming into the void fair enough and uh who would have thought that all you had to do is embrace the void and not scream into it yeah you can scream if you want it's fine but you can also talk at a normal level either way works so (laughs) yeah yeah, talk a little bit about sort of maybe your background and what it is in particular that that y'all are screaming about that brings you to this podcast life Ooh, well, okay. So we are both veterans. We're we're pretty open about that. U.S. yeah, military, U.S. Army vet of five years, at least here from Alex. And when you're in the military, you <laughs> experience a lot of frustration. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of really high level 
kind of like imperialist things that you're involved in that really make you kind of question the systemic, the structures that you're participating in. Mm-hmm. And kind of alongside that is a very philosophical approach, at least in the way that, that we go about it in terms of trying to understand our conditions, both as veterans, both as citizens of a heavily imperialist country, or, uh, you know, just as conscious beings trying to exist. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of <laughs> frames a lot of the background for us. I'll give, uh, I'll give Jim a little bit of time to talk about his, his background too. Yeah. So, uh, similarly, yeah, we're both veterans, we met early on in the service and I think, uh, absurdities of existence actually seem to become intensified in some of the absurdities of military life mm-hmm. in particular. And some of those experiences, which we could talk about, you end up just sort of realize like, am I having my time wasted? And if I'm having my time wasted, like, why is that? Why are we wasting our time in this particular way? Mm-hmm. And it seems so ridiculous. Mm-hmm. And every rock you turn over, you end up with more questions and you kind of, you probably go through a period of confusion where you're wondering, like, did I get uh, duped into doing this military thing? And then even after that, you're like, what do I even believe anymore? Like, mm-hmm. usually the movement into the military um, comes along with philosophical, political, religious shifts, probably, you know, for a generation away from religion, whatever. It's just, it's a very, uh, you, you, I think it is not uncommon to grapple with mm-hmm. questions of philosophical importance if you're having dissatisfaction in the military at all. So our, our, I think we occupy that kind of mm-hmm. uh, center of the Venn diagram between, you know, pessimistic, uh, void inspired philosophy and, um, some military leftism, which there's plenty of. Yeah. It's interesting that when you bring that up, because I think about it now, like a lot of the great sort of existential art is often about people in the military, like catch 22 or slaughterhouse five or something like that. These are sort of mm-hmm. people wrestling with, or in the midst of these kind of military experiences that do produce these kinds of existential crises. Now you said there, the you sort of have questions about like the pointlessness of this activity do you think that it's good to have a standing military do you think that like we should have one of these things and it's just not being done functionally or do you sort of question the whole enterprise at this point definitely question the whole enterprise i mean i think i'll let alex sum it up better because um what do you think alex yeah so you you spend a lot of time standing in line doing nothing losing equipment breaking stuff all of the time (laughs) And at some point, you really question where all of this money is coming from, what it's all doing, and what it's what the purpose of all of it really is. If you take a very wide frame of view, take like a huge step back, and you look at what the military is about, it's mm-hmm. literally training to kill people, to end life, and to destroy property. And no one who is convinced of any kind of value in this world uh, can really get behind that. So yeah, it's, it's pretty easy to say that there's, there's no, we don't believe that the military, at least in its current conception should exist in, in like a very, at least for me, like standing army type way or in our current society, a heavily imperialist multi hundred billion dollar budget uh, hmm. kind of way. So. Interesting. You can't get rid of a major institution like that overnight if you were to make some radical change. Mm-hmm. So we think that uh, it needs to be walked back, uh, you know, defunded, de- like the budget shrunk, f- like waste and, and fraudulent behaviors, uh, like uses, fraudulent uses of funds for um, the wrong things should be reallocated to social programs that benefit everyone, mm-hmm. not just, um, you know, certain companies that stand to benefit from 
military engagement and consistent, constant, um, forever wars. And I, I'm, so, I'm guessing I can pretty much figure out the answer here, but what are the odds of any of this sort of happening in terms of actual trend lines turning towards reduced funding for these sorts of things? Well, I allow myself to be hopeful because okay. that's the only way I can get through life. Fair you enough. Know? Yeah. Um, but yeah, uh, so obviously um, Biden has increased the um, defense budget. That's a, a constant thing. Um, Democrats, Republicans alike, they mm-hmm. all seem to be on the same page when it comes to um, expansion of the military and the use of America's military might and the fact that their budget is larger than the next 20 countries combined, that we have real, really no challenger um, on the planet um, as of yet. We definitely have people that could give us um, a hard time that would cost us money and would uh, be a threat to the bottom line, but there's no one that's really like an existential threat. <laughs> like just about States, any right? poor farmer yeah. in any I'm other curious. part of the country. You don't consider China? Yeah. I mean, like, I, I don't but, think we should go to war with China, but just I'm just curious, power level-wise, you don't feel like China would, pro- would pose an existential threat, or do you feel like it would, but only because it would escalate to a nuclear exchange? I don't have any more knowledge than any of these... Sure. Uh, you know, uh, foreign policy wonks in DC do, but I think that they are, they stand to benefit from, uh, making us afraid of China, afraid of Russia. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of, um, evidence that even if they did pose a threat, if they had a massive military that wasn't, um, you know, painted rust as some people have called it. Mm. Um, the fact is that they're not irrational and they wouldn't, they wouldn't do that because they actually seem to focus on prosperity to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and their whole, their whole government, economy, culture isn't centered around um, imperial expansionism and having 800-some military bases scattered across the planet like ours is. Mm-hmm. So it seems like we have a, a unique problem of this um, these intertwined systems of economic, military, cultural, political, even entertainment um, systems built together. This is really like kind of a cancer that's in the middle of, of everything we do. Um, it's in the middle of our country. Um through and through so listening to you guys talk i get the sense that y'all come from perhaps a more leftist vibe is that true and is that uncommon do you feel like in, in these kind of military communities i feel special but i'm not the only one i think we've been surprised at how many people oh, yeah. are like us right alex yeah it it's certainly uncommon but in you can sniff each other out i think we've said this yeah. before <laughs> where if you're standing in formation or, you know, your first sergeant says something really dumb and everyone kind of just like rolls their eyes and looks at each other, you'll lock eyes with someone across the formation that, you know, thinks the same ways. Mm. And you probably aren't going to go start a union. You're probably not going to go like lead a revolution or anything like that. But at least the two of you know that you're not in it alone, that you're not the only one who thinks all of this is incredibly absurd. What, what kind of dumb things and could you give an example that like just to calibrate like what we're talking about here that would trigger you know, those kind of eye rolls? Hmm. Oh man, we could probably go for days, but <laughs> if you ever had your boss tell you that you needed to go out into the parking lot and pick every single weed uh, that exists like in the cracks of the pavement of that parking lot and you're going to do it for the next four hours, also it's after close of business on a Friday, oh. that's one yeah. of the dumb things I've, up- I've literally yeah. done. Uh-huh. And is that, is that just for- really absurd punishment? Yeah, that's, that's punishment. That's just sort of what that's for. Mm-hmm. Or just details. Uh-huh. Yeah, they'll say sweep the motor pool, this wide open paved concrete space, and they'll say, hey, sweep it up. And it's like four guys with brooms that are out there sweeping something the size of a Walmart parking lot. Or they sit for if they're even more ridiculous, they say, uh, um, hey, turn over all the rocks in the uh, 
battalion in front of the battalion headquarters so that they get evenly tanned on both sides you know so you're just out there just having your time wasted it's like uh-huh. i would almost wish i was on a chain gang because it would feel like i'm doing something is this just because but like instead you're you all are, you're on the on the you know clock but there's nothing to do so it's just endless make work all the time yeah that's that's part of yeah. it i also think there's a lot of expression of just really fraught masculinity mm. that goes around mm-hmm. in the military mm-hmm. to the point mm-hmm. that if you have like a middle manager type boss who doesn't feel like they're you know exercising authority appropriately they're just going to find ways to do mm-hmm. it and the military is the perfect way to execute like a hierarchical just like slap around like that mm-hmm. to the point that everyone is like oh my god please stop yeah me out of this. i think it's almost a universal experience that you've had a boss who's just has no right being your boss or being your supervisor and it's just ruining your day because he or she can. <laughs> yeah. That's, there's also that's like a common, common experience. in the military, there's legal compunction over you too. Mm-hmm. Like if you disobey a direct order, <laughs> you're going to get fucked with legally. That doesn't quite exist in other aspects of our society. Like obviously if you get fucked with by your boss and they can threaten to take away your job, threaten to fire you, whatever it may be. Um, mm-hmm. But specifically in the military they can threaten to throw you in jail that's very interesting threaten to throw you in for them G- given how much mm-hmm. we like as a society as individualism is sort of prevalent right now are sort of rebellious mm-hmm. against the idea that like just following orders is a sufficient justification for you know at post 1940s behavior um it's it's weird mm-hmm. that like individuals still in the military right like you could go to jail for for not just following orders in that kind of way it creates this pretty ridiculous situation it seems like yeah i mean you see this with whistleblowers Mm -hmm. all of the time uh daniel hale was a recent whistleblower who exposed he was a drone operator stationed i think somewhere in new mexico and he exposed the statistic that 90 percent of our drone strikes actually inflicts civilian casualties or excuse me let me rephrase that mm-hmm. of the casualties inflicted by all drone strikes across the globe 90 percent of the people that die are civilians and have no relation to any kind of like mm. you know non-state or state actor enemy of the united states kind An of impressive thing. stat and he was thrown into jail just about immediately mm-hmm. because the concern is not you know how we're using these resources or the suffering that we're inflicting on the rest of the world it's uh did you break regulation by exposing mm-hmm. us? And yeah, happens constantly. Wow. So I'm curious what other sorts of issues y'all feel like. And I'm like, let me ask you this first. Do you feel that individuals often like go into the military because they are sort of pro-authority, but end up coming out of it sort of more anti-authoritarian because of these kinds of things? I actually distinctly push back against this idea, or we explicitly push back against this idea. There are, within a lot of leftist spaces, an inherent rejection of veterans because they think that you're like cops or Mm -hmm. that uh, you just signed up because you want to go kill people or or you want to, you know, be hua hua all about America kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But in reality, most of the people that join the military do so for very explicit material reasons and Mm -hmm. the fact that. We have a really awful economy where a lot of people can't find jobs that pay any kind of living wage. Most of the jobs that do pay some form of like minimum wage, if it's not two thirteen an hour, it's seven twenty five an hour, and you don't have health care, uh, you probably can't afford even a one bedroom apartment, no matter what state you're living in. Mm-hmm. And 
the military compared to that looks like a phenomenal option because they, they spin it all up. You have recruiters come to your high school and they tell you that not only are you going to get a steady paycheck, you're not going to get fired. You're going to go travel the world and see a bunch of cool things. We're also going to help pay for your college. You're also going to have a roof over your head the entire time, unless you're in the field. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And uh, you also get food like, the military provides a whole lot of social services to people that should exist to every single citizen in this country, but doesn't. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people join because it's a jobs program, because it's the only thing available to someone fresh out of high school, because we don't have tuition-free college in this country. Or if you do go to college, you're going to end up with hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt, and you're still going to be working like a $40,000 a year job afterwards. Right. And we call this the economic draft. It's the poverty draft. Hmm. There's a reason that recruiters specifically target neighborhoods. Like uh, I have some buddies over in the Bronx who the recruiters will come out to the poorest high schools that they can find because that's where they get the best recruiting numbers. Do you think it's the poverty? Do you think they should be prohibited from doing that? Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. (laughs) Unequivocally, yes. Um, and I, I actually work in a couple of organizations, nonprofit organizations like Veterans for Peace that are actively working mm. in uh, the counter recruitment movement to speak out one against these types of recruiters, but also to put veterans in front of uh, like young adult age children in high schools and, and explain to them what the realities of military service are, as opposed to this Hollywoodized, uh, like really glamorized version mm-hmm. that they tell you. Do you all have a sense of like what the recruiting situation is like for the military? Like, are they doing well on their numbers at the moment? Are they doing poorly? And like, what does that mean for the sort of levels of of desperation that they are at in terms of who they are targeting and how they're doing it? Well, pre-COVID, they had missed for the first time in many years their actual recruiting goals. Mm -hmm. I think they were um, starting, they were starting to lose the control of the narrative about the military being... Um, an honorable way to serve your country and nothing but good things come of it. And if you're a badass, if you do it, uh, but, uh, unfortunately, um, any times there's a, there's a recession or, or economic trials and tribulations, much people lose their jobs. That's a perfect situation for military recruiting. Mm-hmm. And during the, um, COVID pandemic, a lot of people that were getting out decided to stay in, in fact, to reenlist mm-hmm. and a lot of other people that wouldn't have otherwise had to do it wouldn't have had to go to the recruiting offices did. So they've been clearing their numbers um, pretty comfortably during um, COVID. Interesting. So you mentioned that like one of the lures of this kind of recruiting model is these ser- social services and things like that. Um, but I, first of all, it occurs to me, I feel like the military has not been in the news recently. I'm curious if there are any sort of examples to the contrary that come to mind for y'all, but it seems like it sort of has been in the background uh, for the past couple of years. And in fact, the last time I can remember a large news story about the military was about sort of the horrors of the VA and like how poorly things were going with veterans, healthcare kind of stuff. Is that still a nightmare? Has that nightmare changed at all as far as y'all are aware? Well, there's a, there's a couple of points there. One, we're obviously pretty tied into military news just because we keep tabs Mm -hmm. on it. We, podcast about it but there's a very deliberate choice to keep american military invention intervention out of the news mm-hmm. it costs yes. so much money and it costs significant suffering even just in like non-american 
like foreign nationals in our military, specifically the people who just come back broken, both physically and mentally. Mm -hmm. It serves a very specific type of person to make sure that these wars can continue happening, but they don't receive the same type of social pushback that we saw, like, let's say during Vietnam. Right. Uh, the people who benefit from that are the people who supply the the materials necessary for these wars and also supply the contractors necessary for these wars. So large military industrial corporations like Raytheon, Boeing, Northrop Grumman, stuff like that. Uh, it's a very deliberate point to make sure that these news stories of mm. you know people coming home in body bags or with American flags draped over their co- their coffins aren't in in everyone's faces all of the time um and then to your second point about the va stuff like we the va is an admittedly super screwed up bureaucratic process mm-hmm. there are people who work for the va who really genuinely want to do the best by the veterans who are coming to them for help mm-hmm but they can't because they've been kind of gutted in the way that all social services across the United States have been gutted to adhere to a very like penny pinching type of like systemic pressure to make sure that veteran veterans can only get service if they prove beyond any shadow of a doubt that all of the injuries that they sustained were directly related to something that happened in the military, which Mm -hmm shouldn't be the case for one, any veterans or two, just anyone in the United States. Right. We're both advocates of universal health care yeah, and, and injuries should health- get treatment. That's really just, yeah. The um, VA, there's a, there's a tried and true method. Um, that the uh, right, especially libertarian, right? Like these uh, hard right conservatives that um, to defund something, which justifies their argument mm-hmm. that it's not working anymore. And then they privatize that instead of take it out of um, public hands like really the solution um, for most of these things is always is, is funding mm-hmm. and funding will be sufficient to um, resolve a wide number like these people that are dying on wait lists in the VA those horror stories that they published um, that's really the cause of it is just um, getting defunded uh, and uh, in preparation for them getting privatized somewhere else and really that's why uh, we both really admire um, Bernie Sanders he's uh, been like roundly supportive of veterans since um the beginning of his career he was um the one most responsible for uh, the large number of bills to support expansion of, of va care um, protecting veterans um benefits after the service and then also like during his actual 2016 uh run for the presidency he or during his primary he received the most donations from individual veterans of any candidate in in the field uh-huh. um, right or left um and that's that's really why he like funding is in this is story right like Part of me has to ask, and like I feel like I know the answer, but at the same time, like why is it that so much money can be gotten for the military, broadly speaking, right? You're just talking about how it's overfunded in so many ways and needs to be sort of defunded in a lot of ways, but it's so hard to get sufficient funding for medical care for, you know, soldiers. Like, is it really as cartoonishly evil as just like people don't care about the people once they get back? But like even there... You know, if you're trying to recruit people into the military, something that would keep me away would be, you know, lack of trust about the military having my back if I get injured. So, like, having these horror stories running around can't be great for recruitment. Do you have any sense of, like, why it is just so hard to to get, like, proper funding in these areas? Yeah. 
Yeah, the money's going to the wrong place is is really the problem. So they they send it to um, research and development, to acquisitions, to things like this, to where the actual um, corporations that are or that make up the military industrial mm-hmm. complex, you know, Raytheon, Northrop Grumman, Boeing, whatever. Um, they get massive budgets and expansions for these programs that um, are really just making up a huge sector of the economy of our mm-hmm. American economy at this point. Um, and it's going there. While in the meantime, like we always joke that you see um, the F-35, which is like a, just a wildly, mm-hmm. just historically wasteful program. And in the meantime, we still can't um, get enough toilet paper for guys mm. uh, or for soldiers in the field. Um, so there's kind of this ironic... Um, like again, absurd problem of being the most well-funded military in human history with the most successful logistical train, logistical system that still can't mm-hmm. provide basic necessities um, for people. And that's because that's not why that budget is that big. That budget is that big for um, yeah. different reasons. And to answer the other part of your question, like why do people still join the military when all of these horror stories are running around? That's an easy one because it's there's a very deliberate propaganda push Mm -hmm. frankly across our entire society uh we talk a lot about the military entertainment complex where you have a dod organization it's like the film liaison unit or something who will offer military equipment to directors to use in their big hollywood blockbuster movies but then the dod retains like final editing rights over the script to make sure that you know, any American service members that are displayed in the movie, they're just, they're portrayed in the most positive light possible. And they have similar relationships with the video game industry. There's a massive upswing in recruiting specifically being done on Twitch, which is like a major gaming platform Mm -hmm. right now. Mm -hmm. And there's a huge deliberate process to make sure that young adults who are coming out of high school have seen Black Hawk Down and they've seen Saving Private Ryan and they associate hate, military service with Down. heroism. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The theater. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, we just actually did a movie episode mm-hmm. on 13 Hours, which is that Benghazi Oh, movie. yeah, yeah. Um, um, we've, we've covered Act of Valor and a couple other ones as well. There's a huge in- entertainment complex that exists to make sure that The American public associates military service with heroism, with being a good man, being like a strong jawed, powerful, you know, man who can accomplish anything. And that's why a lot of these people don't hear the VA stories. That stuff is kept to the back. (laughs) Like They convince you that you're going to come, you're going to have camaraderie, you're going to have brotherhood, you're going to be fight for something true and good. Mm -hmm. Uh, But also we're not going to take care of you on the back end because that would just be too expensive. So I want to talk about the medical stuff more, but since you brought up the, the propaganda arm of things, I'm curious... What do you what are your thoughts about like Marvel, for example, where you have this massive, you know, series that like at some points appears to kind of aggrandize American militarism, but at other points is like very, very explicitly critical of it, Um, like even in um you know the whole story around wanda and like the wanda vision stuff i don't know if you've watched the recent show but it's like it's very mm-hmm. much like critical of explicitly the way that america exports its uh culture as like a t- a way to to get everyone to love it but also exports all of this violence and suffering and such like that um do you feel like that kind of material is ultimately like is helping or is sort of contributing to the problem do you have a sense of of how 
that stuff plays out um, amongst the communities that you're a part of? I would argue that the stuff that comes out of the Marvel mm-hmm. cinematic universe is largely just a regurgitation of a lot of themes that are already present in American culture. Mm-hmm. Like Marvel isn't doing anything special or spicy or new or anything like that. They're really just like showing us ourselves. They're holding up a mirror to the American public and saying like, Hey, this is what you like, right? You like Captain America and you like Iron Man and you like explosions and you like punching and they kind of just regurgitate but with some ironic conversions, you know, you got to twist a few of the tropes nowadays, right? It can't just, you can't just punch Hitler and call it a day is what I'm saying. Yeah. I mean, I'm not, a Marvel stand uh-huh. or anything like that. I personally feel like none of none of the stuff that they're putting out is like incredibly insightful or anything like mm-hmm. that. I do remember in the very first Iron Man, there's like that scene where uh, Tony Stark sees he's a weapons manufacturer, weapons designer, and he sees Tony Stark labeled weapons in the hands of terrorists mm-hmm. and other countries. And that's probably the most salient example that I can give of I are really fucked up exportation exp- yeah exportation of our military industrial complex mm-hmm. just across the globe mm-hmm. um a lot of the conflicts that we're fighting today <laughs> we're literally fighting the people that we were funding 30 years ago sure. like the taliban right um so yeah like i don't know jim if you have anything else on that yeah i my only point i really am not a marvel guy that's just the <laughs> me um i i try to avoid those movies but i do think like um, Captain America is um, like that's a classic example mm-hmm. of just um, really making taking American military culture and, and turning it into entertainment and whatnot. And that almost is explicitly punching mm-hmm. Hitler and calling it good. The right, or at least it was originally model. as a comic mm-hmm. as well. But then, um, yeah, mm-hmm. it was almost too on the nose. Mm-hmm. With, yeah, exactly. It was too on the nose almost with uh, Iron Man because he's this billionaire defense contractor who makes right. a suit of armor to go. Well, we had we hadn't invented like, Irony yet back in um, the fifties, so it was like with Batman, I could at least give him like yeah, satire wasn't a thing yet, so it was fine. Um, <laughs> so <laughs> okay, so let me talk a little yeah, bit yeah. more about the the medical side of things because another big issue I think that is is com- comes up a lot is um, mental health for veterans. Um, I'm, I'm curious just first of all, right. I think we all have a de facto assumption at this point that the situation is just always going to be bad for mental uh, health for veterans. Is that accurate? Or do you feel like things have changed for the better or worse in the past, like five years or so, for example? Jim, I'll let you take this one. Yeah. Um, so I think the problem is, like we can we can talk about what's an appropriate mm-hmm. treatment all day long for veterans. Um, I think we we've kind of made our point already that it's not enough. Um, the sources of funding and the sources of um, support that they need are well, it's just not sufficient um, right now. And I think it's probably the the point that needs to be made is that these are these are things that are not good to begin with. These are not like acceptable costs, human costs. Mm-hmm. Um, as a result of like legitimate military activity. Um, if you have people who have suffered wounds in world war two, you know, you can think because world war two was justifiable and they're fighting literal Nazis like that makes sense. Um, and there are sad, tragic human costs there, but mm-hmm. they were doing something worth their time. Uh, we have a very hard time, um, trying to put together any defensible argument for what mm. the American military is doing mm-hmm. abroad. 
right now. Um, and the it's a huge contributing factor to why people come back from these wars abroad from Iraq and Afghanistan, Iraq in particular. Um, and mm-hmm. two things like one have endured um, trauma that they can't explain. They don't understand. Um, they don't know why they don't have a justification to themselves, to their families, why they were gone, why they suffered, what happened. They lost friends that um, were as close mm-hmm. as family um, and then saw that lost them in horrific ways. You know, so people talk about um, stories of literally being on details, trying to collect enough of their friend to put in a wow. bag to send home for a funeral. You know, like that's the sort of stuff that like, that's not, that's not something that you make people do without a really, really good reason. And we don't have that right now. I think you owe, we owe, like any service member, a good reason to Mm. put them in situations like that. And when they don't have it, they're going to have at a way more uh, prevalent rate, mental health issues, Mm post-traumatic stress, et cetera. Now, um, the second thing is that they, like, they come back to a society that um, after having been Mm -hmm. a member of the military, having, felt a, a sense of community because there are good things. In the, I know we've been bashing the military a little bit um, because of its structure and like it's a, the reason for its being like those things we take issue with. But in a, in a big way, it's a prototype for kind of a utopian socialist model. Mm-hmm. If you have enough funding to have like these installations where they have um, good schools and free daycare and free healthcare, like hospital right down the road and they got affordable um, groceries and every all essential services provided for and they have a communal life with like um, kids mm-hmm. playing everywhere and they got family barbecues all the time and people will help each other out in a sense of um, trust and um, goodwill and like when they're at work they're working towards a common cause like all these things are like they're important like aspects of being a human and they would exist ideally in our regular society um, military or not but when they leave the, the military they, they redeploy they come back home they get out of the military and they encounter this society that we have mm-hmm. built. Um, and the juxtaposition of belonging to a military life, oftentimes where they, they have community and they have a sense of belonging and they encounter this highly like mega isolated, um, like late capitalist society. It's really, really, um, it's really difficult for them to do that. And that, that, um, they struggle with that adjustment and the isolation is, is magnified. Mm-hmm. It's made tenfold, um, for them. We, so, what do we call um, it, Jim? I think that's, that's really the model. We, we call happened. it the, uh, the what? serial aisle moment. Mm. You moment. see it. Yeah. Yeah. The hurt locker moment yeah. is what we call it. There's a scene in the hurt locker where he comes home from his deployment and he's looking at these rows and rows of cereal and just like 50 different versions of peanut butter. And he has like a breakdown mm-hmm. in the grocery mm-hmm. store which speaks a lot to what veterans go through whenever they return. Like they, they come home, they've been deployed, like Jim said, working towards a common mission. They're experiencing camaraderie. They're going through some of the toughest circumstances that, you know, really anyone can really go through and they're coming out on the other end. Mm-hmm. And then they're shucked back to the States where uh, they go live in a one bedroom apartment. And the only interaction that they have with their fellow man is parasocial relationships over the internet Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. people just break down. They fall apart because that's an inhuman way for us to have structured our society. Mm -hmm. And a lot of veterans suffer specifically, uh, specifically from moral injury Mm -hmm. wherein they will go experience some kind of traumatic or like hyper stressful circumstance 
and suffer from PTSD because they witness or they are forced to participate in some kind of event or system that contradicts deeply held moral beliefs or expectations. And I personally know a lot of veterans that have suffered from this moral injury and come back and there's no, they don't get any support. Mm -hmm. You can't come back from the war and say like, I saw people die over there and I can't wrap my brain around why that even happened in the first place. Why were, why were we even boots on the ground in Iraq or in Afghanistan in the first Mm -hmm. place? If you really dig into it and you realize like we were lied to about all of the the spin up to the Iraq war, you have a hard time squaring that circle. It's impossible. Mm -hmm. And you're especially not going to do it by yourself in your isolated, shitty little apartment that you come back to. Yeah, it kind of almost reminds me of like Shawshank, right, where that's sort of the institutionalization and then having to try to renormalize in that kind of way. Um, But this discussion of like you know seeing pointless horror kind of thing i think is really important to stick on for something that i'm i'm personally sort of interested in which is the the um the conspiracism angle you know i'm very concerned about the spread of conspiracy theories and the way that they are part of our Mm -hmm. political landscape especially at this particular moment um and it seems to me that veterans pose veterans are at a particularly high risk of like intersecting um you know sort of causes for conspiracism like you've already you've already touched on that a lot of them are coming from socioeconomic backgrounds that might put them at higher risk um and then you add in trauma you add in a sense of isolation and especially i think you know you see in the stories of the lives of people like Bill Cooper, who's one of these famous conspiracy theorists that like they go off to Vietnam and they see, you know, a version of like the real horror that like underlies these fears about conspiracy theories. They see pointless death caused by, you know, political machinations that don't seem at all coherent. Um, And then it primes them to kind of imagine that like, if that's what's going on and that's, what's like visible, like, of course there must be all sorts of even stupider, more horrible things. Um, so I'm curious what y'all's experiences are about like conspiracism in these communities. And do you feel like it's um, potentially getting worse um, in the current climate? Okay. I can speak to this a little mm-hmm. bit. There is certainly a trend of veterans who get out of the military and they are, they gravitate towards organizations that promise them a sense of community along kind of like a dialect that they can Mm -hmm. speak. So you look at some far right groups like the Boogaloo Boys or the Proud Boys or something like that. And they're all very deliberately like proto-fascist where they're running around wearing surplus military gear and working out constantly and doing like MMA clubs and stuff. Mm -hmm. And they are validating the masculinity of a lot of these veterans who are coming out and just searching for something. They don't... They were removed from the community that they're used to at this point, stuck into an isolated society, and they're looking for like the closest kind of handhold to just start making sense of the situation. Mm -hmm. And if those groups get their fangs into like a very recent ex-veteran, some bad things can happen, which is why specifically I'm working in the space to create alternative communities to Mm -hmm. that where veterans can actually express some of their their consternation some of their frustration over the moral injury that they experience and have a supportive relatively positive community to fall back on that isn't these 
weird conspiracist groups that you're talking about. Mm -hmm. Two, I think whenever you do experience this kind of moral injury, you're searching for something with explanatory power. You're searching for a reason why everything sucks and why everything Mm -hmm. is going bad and why you just wasted your entire young adult life fighting for a cause that doesn't make any sense and losing your brothers, losing your sisters, possibly losing your limbs or losing your sanity over it. There has to be like a a reason, Mm -hmm. right? No one can... And and like you you start delving into weird like leftist socialist stuff and you're thrown marks and angles and all of these different tomes that you're supposed you're expected to read and none of it makes sense. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But the guy that's over there says like, oh, it's the Jews who did it, or it's like the uh, the elders. What is it? The protocols of the elders of Zion explains all of this for Mm -hmm. you. That's much easier to grasp for people who don't have any foundation, like intellectual foundation, to really critique what they have experienced. Do you see that kind of stuff and actually happening in do- the communities? Like, do you see people passing around the protocols or, or you know, the pale, behold a pale horse or something like that? I personally have not. Mm-hmm. I have personally witnessed senior leaders within the army specifically who uh, expressed to me that they wish they could have been like at the January 6th insurrection mm, or something mm-hmm. like that where, and I know Jim has also had some of his run-ins with some far right people, but <laughs> it's some of the aspects of the military. If you're familiar with Umberto Echo's uh, tenets of fascism mm-hmm. was like the 14 points of fascism. There's, action for action's sake, there's masculinity, there are like fear of the other. And a lot of that ties in specifically to how you are trained slash brainwashed in your early years within the military. Like a lot of those tropes carry over. Mm -hmm. And so it's very easy to see why if someone gets out of the military and they don't have an alternate support structure with kind of like a community that can explain to them what happened to them, then yeah, they're going to fall into some pretty bad places. Mm. So the the way to address that is one, begin to build those communities of veterans who can support you through that transition. And two, have an actual structured critique of the events that you went through. Mm-hmm. If I can look at a veteran and say like, the reason you're suffering right now, like I empathize with you, I get what you're going through. Like, holy shit, this really sucks, man. I'm sorry but you should be mad. Like you should be mad that you went through this to line the pockets of some Raytheon executive Mm -hmm. or to line the pocket, like to drive up the share price of Boeing or something like that. If I can show them exactly how and why all of this happened and it's all its root cause within the for-profit structure that we have of our military industrial complex, Mm -hmm. then we can start winning that culture battle Mm -hmm. essentially for (laughs) For uh, forgive me for using some like religious terminology, but for the souls of some of these veterans who otherwise are going to go off and join the fucking boogaloo. Heart, hearts and minds is y'all's favorite kind of term for that sort of thing, right? Winning hearts and minds. <laughs> um, Jim, did you want to yeah. jump in there with your sort of experiences yeah, like, dealing with these kinds of in this area of things? Yeah, I think. Uh, well, I mean, I think probably everyone's got stories of running into these people. But the military does seem to have this this contradictory mm-hmm. nature um, to it. Like we said, it's already kind of this prototype of a. Of a, a reasonably functioning 
um, socialist mm-hmm. society, like almost utopian, where it's got these perfect, uh, like it provides all these um, social services that every um, citizen should be receiving anyways, right? But then they also turn around and they say that um, they want like maximum deregulation, taxation is theft. Uh, they hate the concept of trans people being in the military. They don't want to use anyone's pronouns. They freaked out when they said what natural hair <laughs> yeah. highlights was allowed in the red regulation <laughs> earlier this year. Like um, just this random sort of um, hyper-masculine insecurity, um, homophobia uh, and, and things like that. And it just, um, I don't think um, as much um, far right, um, sort of extremism happens while they're in the military. I think they get out and they encounter mm. um, the radicalizing factors of isolation, loneliness, um, frustration, uh, difficulty getting a job, or they, you know, they might lose some of the social services that they didn't realize mm-hmm. they needed mm-hmm. so badly. I don't know. Um, I don't have the necessary, it's hard to, it's hard to find evidence for that. Like I don't, you can't do a survey. It's like, Hey, do you have a politically extreme um, sure, ideas right. uh, on one scale of one to 10? But the, um, I think that they encounter that and the proud boys sweep them up, you know, and they offer them really, they offer them basically um, ideological candy, something that's very sweet and satisfying in the moment, but in over in the long run is, uh, is not sufficient Mm -hmm. um, nourishment. Um, And ideally there'd be an alternative to that where uh, we could offer them uh, Mm -hmm. explanatory power um, and a way to participate um, in a group towards a collective goal, making society a better place in some sort of way, whether it's political or just, or community, um, service oriented or what have you. And, it, um, though it might not be, um, as immediately satisfying as some of this, uh, boogaloo mm-hmm. boy, um, proto-fascist nonsense. Um, it actually in the long term makes them, helps them heal, helps them reintegrate with society, mm-hmm. helps them feel like they have a place again. Um, and I think that's how we see it going. I don't, um, I think most the military while they're in uniform has done a pretty good job of, of stressing mm-hmm. the apolitical, um, thing that's like part of the military ethic is like, oh, I don't vote. I'm gonna. It's like I don't know why you wouldn't vote. You're a citizen. You're entitled to vote. But they they pride themselves on their um, political mm-hmm. neutrality or something like that. That has started to become eroded. Even that has become started to become eroded with the January sixth stuff, which really um, they started having to send out notices that you couldn't include "Make America Great Again" in your email <laughs> signature block. And um, leaders like officers were dis. Uh, uh, discouraged from putting uh, Trump stickers on their F-150s and whatnot. It's kind of a goofy time, but um, I think the military is really struggling to maintain a hold on that um, political, um, Mm -hmm. apolitical ethic while they're still in the service. But once they're out, it's like all bets are off. They encounter, they encounter all that um, psychosis. Do you get a sense there's still a strong MAGA contingent within the military at this point? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. It's, um, I think ahead, there's, Jeff. yeah, I think it's, uh, it's probably not, it's not a hundred percent. Like a lot of people think it is. Mm-hmm. They write the military off. Like it's one, um, giant voting block or something, but, um, and there's a sizable portion that, uh, would be that were repelled by the concept of Trump. And there's a sizable portion of that portion that, um, we didn't think Bernie Sanders was the devil, you know, and that's, that's where, mm-hmm. that's where uh, we fit. And we continually meet people, um, who are actually, sympathetic but i think yeah um on the whole i'd say close to half are the sort of people that 
Okay, to varying degrees support. So let China. me switch gears a little bit here before we run all the way out of time, um, because when we were chatting before the show, one of the things that we talked about as a potential uh, topic, but this has all been really fascinating, and this actually, I think, relates in, in a lot of ways to the things y'all have been discussing, is um, y'all do sort of philosophy as well as podcasts, as well as uh, politics on your show, and you have been, I think, recently, you mentioned y'all were both really interested in um, Ligotti's book, uh, Conspiracy Against the Human Race, which I had heard come up a couple of times, but hadn't spend much time on and did a little bit of reading since you suggested it. Um, and I'm really curious what, you know, what y'all's takeaway from that book is and why it's sort of, I can, you know, why it speaks to you based on your kinds of um, experiences. Um, yeah, I, so we carry that book around. I know I did in particular and mm. read from it like it's scripture. Like that book is just my favorite. <laughs> I love that thing. Um, it was really, um, and it's, and I say that because it's like revelatory almost. It feels like for the first time okay. someone's saying something true to you. And this time it doesn't conflict with what my understanding of science and, and, and philosophy and logic and everything, okay. the way that, um, yeah, so what are our revelations does. here? So, um, <laughs> it's based on, yeah, the, the revelations, the revelations according to Thomas Ligotti. Um, so if you have spent too much time, um, either doing philosophy or doing, um, or really just encountering absurd things in your life that make you question, um, you know, morality, uh, life after death, like any of those things that, um, you've come to lean on to make sense of the world and mm -hmm. they start to disappear for you. Um, the absurdity, uh, if you lack ex explanation for it, um, explanation for the way you feel, um, especially if you've encountered a uh, depression or a major depressive episode or something, um, it can be kind of confusing. Um, and Ligotti's whole premise for that book is like his thesis is that, um, being alive mm. is not all right. Yeah. <laughs> Just says that. <laughs> and that's, um, and as a supernatural horror author where, um, mm -hmm. kind of like HP Lovecraft or something, he uses not just philosophical, um, like, like philosophy and he doesn't just appeal to, um, philosophers. He, he uses his, um, knowledge of, of culture and literature and his, his actual mm -hmm. work as a, as a fiction writer, um, to paint a very, really like creatively mm -hmm. pessimistic um, picture as well. So he, he talks about a whole bunch of things among, you know, determinism, lack of free will, um, the fact that uh, we have this um, conscious, this consciousness mm -hmm. that's unable to comprehend itself. Um, that's kind of um, trying to convince itself that it exists, trying to convince itself that it's, it's an agent in the world, but um, is repeatedly forced to confront the truth that it is not. Um, and these, these confrontations are, are the source of real mm -hmm. angst. You know, so especially the major one, uh, the ultimate one, which is confrontation with mm. the knowledge of our own mortality. Um, with sufficient understanding power, we come to understand our own finitude. And, and that's one that's really hard for a lot of people to swallow. And even if they say they, that they've made their peace with their death, it's like, well, you know, you haven't really proved that you've mm. made your peace mm -hmm. with death yet, have you? Um, and yeah, I mean, there's, there's so many sections of that book that we like. Um, a lot, but I don't. I think I'll let. Well, yeah. Let me let me just Alex ask you, Alex. Yeah, do you do you think that life is being alive is all right or not all right? <laughs> That's hard to answer. Okay, fair enough. Even if you are, even if you do consider yourself to be a nihilist, um, mm. <laughs> I was just watching. I was just watching uh, the Big Lebowski Classic. last night, and they're talking about uh, all the the German nihilists. Like they're nihilists, Donnie. Ignore them. <laughs> That's right. Um, but even if you not even if you consider either. yourself, yeah, if, you're not serious people is how the the movie portrayed them. But Lagatti himself is a nihilist. He is a pessimist. He's an anti-natalist. He thinks that 
life itself is malignantly useless that they're the only thing that is guaranteed in our existence is suffering and death Mm -hmm. and you can know that on a philosophical intellectual level Mm -hmm. i've read the book i get what he's saying but then you can't know that internally right and i think Lagatti would say that you can't believe really that life is malignantly useless unless you are currently going through like a a depressive episode or you have had some kind of physiological uh, imposition on you where you literally suffer from ego death. Mm -hmm. Like you don't have any conscious conception of yourself. He speaks about this a little bit in the book where I think there's, there's been a couple of, you know, cases where people, cease to recognize themselves Mm -hmm. they go look at themselves in the mirror and they just have no concept of themselves there are a couple of fascinating uh, instances of like cotter's delusion where you literally believe you are dead and you can't be convinced otherwise and you guys you guys did an episode on blindsight the book which i've talked about on philosophers in space which goes into those kinds Mm -hmm. of psychological distortions yeah and so he would say that unless you are in that specific frame of mind, like you, mm-hmm. you really aren't, you really aren't a nihilist unless you're in that point. Like you, you can think you are, you can say you are, but you, you don't like truly believe it on a very shouldn't that, real level. Shouldn't that raise some doubts about our claim here, though? Like, there's a joke in philosophy that philosophy tells you more about the philosopher writing it than the actual reality that they live in and like (laughs) Ligotti from what I gather I was reading a little background reading on him he suffers from besides depression he suffers or chronic anxiety he suffers from a a disease called um anhedonia which I had not heard of before and sounds like the world's shittiest disease where you basically can't have pleasure right it's like the opposite of being able to functionally enjoy things so like if I had that disease, I probably also think that like life is horrible and pointless, but I'm not sure that really like tracks for everybody though. I think Jim can probably speak a little bit more to this one. No. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't have to necessarily. Yeah. It doesn't have to necessarily. Right. His point is that, um, it's really like, I think it's valuable for people to read it. Um, if they need to, I mean, if you're, if you're a happy person, you're getting along just fine in your life. Like, yeah, probably don't pick up the, the Necronomicon here and read. You know, oh, I definitely think you should read the Necronomicon as soon as but you can. <laughs> if you are, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, but the people that uh, have, his point is that being a sane person is a very, mm. it's a balancing act. It's a very, um, very precious, like very, um, uh, what do you call it? Like a precarious mm. position to be in. Cause there's like, there's, um, so many different ways of being mm-hmm. a conscious being and only very, very few of those ways are considered sane, happy and functional. So this is where I'm on board. Right? This I very much so agree with. There yeah, are I like so this. many. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay. There are so many, so many points of failure in the human brain and human psyche. There's so many different things that could go wrong. And I think his point is that the people whose consciousness uh, has stopped to work for it, who stopped to function um, for mm-hmm. them appropriately, um, kind of lifts the veil on reality for them. And then they're forced to see reality as it actually is, which is that there's nothing for you, but suffering and death that you don't really exist, that uh, you don't have free will, all these things that um, we have to believe to be Mm -hmm. successful human beings. Right. And his point is that, Hey, look like um, uh, effectively functioning humans, these, these everyday people who walk around um, 
uh, happy and, and enjoying things more or less and getting by with their day. Like what they're doing is they're successfully either lying to themselves about something they don't want to know or don't want to think about or, or consciously limiting mm -hmm. what they're thinking about so as not to mm -hmm. go somewhere they can't, um, somewhere to go that would, that would derail everything. Um, and I think that uh, is extremely insightful and it's valuable for people who are not, uh, who are not being successfully conscious, who are not able to keep themselves happy and in a good space, which is interesting because I've tried this out a few times. This was um, interesting because I saw someone who, um, who in, in my family who's um, been mm -hmm. diagnosed with clinical depression um, encounter one of these passages where Lagati talks about his own mm -hmm. depression. Um, since you're right, he clearly is working through um, his own um, challenges with, with living. And uh, they read one of these passages and instead of being uh, made more depressed by some of these, uh, some of the things he was saying who, who uh, ended up becoming hopeless and, and mm -hmm. downtrodden and dejected about it. They instead were almost elated that someone had captured in words mm -hmm. and put on the paper, the exact nebulous feeling that they were struggling with and that they were um, burdened mm -hmm. with as a depressive. Um, and it's amazing to me that you can actually, that Ligotti makes people happier. He makes people, um, uh, reckon with reality and realize that it's okay. It's not you that's messed up. It's reality and consciousness that's messed up. <laughs> it's almost like you're, um, uh, absolved or you're, you're, it's mm. an exculpatory, um, explanation for yourself because you're no longer at fault for, uh, your own condition. I think it's, it's a fascinating right. little, uh, reversal well, and ironic. I really like this uh, idea. At least in the set, the twice, the two times. Yeah. This idea about limiting the content of one's consciousness to avoid going insane, which is like a classic kind of Lovecraftian um, idea, mm -hmm. but also, you know, makes perfect mm -hmm. sense, especially yeah. I think in our modern media age where we are all effectively relying on things that prevent us from being aware of how much horror there is in the world as a way to like continue to functionally yes. um, get by and not feel utterly depressed all of the time. Um, so like, do you feel, and, and maybe um, this can be sort of our, our wrap-up thought here, do you feel like we have a moral obligation to break down those artificial limiting factors and sort of confront people and ourselves with the true horror of reality? And then, like, should our conclusion after that be a kind of, like, rad radical antinatalism or rejection of life, or should it be some attempt to sort of continue to find value amidst all of that horror? So from my perspective, this comes down, moral obligation is hard mm -hmm. to impose on people. And Lagani is very descriptive, not as opposed to prescriptive mm -hmm. in his writing. I mean, Lagani himself would probably is certainly an antinatalist. A lot of the philosophers that he cites are antinatalists. I personally am not. And this stems from how I particularly interpreted his work. It was, I think Jim said it a couple of times to me specifically outside of the context of this podcast, where it's like, it's like fresh water, fresh, cold, biting water being splashed in your face. And it's like that, that's the moment where you truly feel like you understand, like you're hyper aware of everything that's going on. The, the, the real, the real shit <laughs> that's going on around you. Um, and that's what Lagani, <laughs> that's what reading Lagani feels like. And I came away from it with a different interpretation. Like one, I do think that 
most people should probably think about death more than they do in their active, like their mm-hmm. current active lives. Oh, it would yeah. frankly help them deal with their their own mortality in a lot healthier ways, um, deal with other people's mortality in a lot healthier ways. But what I took out of Lagani specifically was if you understand that everyone who was born into this world, one didn't ask for it. Like none of us chose to be conscious. No, none of us accepted the fact that we were just going to be going through suffering when the only destination that we can reach is death at the end of it. Mm -hmm. You come out of that understanding with a very deep sense of empathy for just the human condition itself. Mm -hmm. And it is impossible to look at someone and understand that we didn't ask for this. We didn't want this. We didn't acquiesce to this in any kind of way we were just thrust upon this world as Lagati would say it hunks of spoiling flesh on disintegrating bones Mm -hmm. to look at people going through something like that and say this is your fault you chose this if you're a homeless veteran something you did Mm -hmm. made you deserve the conditions that you're in the very material conditions And you start to tear down all of these structures that have imposed upon us separation from our fellow suffering man. Mm -hmm. The the for-profit model that we've based our entire society off of. The reason why people like politicians will get up in front of you and say, like, we need to do away with the minimum wage so that corporations can charge, can like pay you zero dollars if they really... Uh, want to and like all these all these different barriers that we've imposed upon ourselves because we believe that there's some kind of hierarchy that can explain all of this or some kind of structure that means one person should be above another person Mm -hmm. like no fuck that like we are all hunks of spoiling flesh on disintegrating bones we didn't choose this anything that we tell ourselves is by nature suspect it's it's all just a function of this facade that we've put up for ourselves, this macabre mask that that these meat suits wear. Mm-hmm. We we run around telling each other that we know what the fuck's going on and that things are uh, that there is a way that you're supposed to live this life. And what I come from, what I come away from Lagati understanding is that none of that is true. The only thing that we can really do is accept or not accept the very kind of like surreal uncanny conditions of our existence and then choose our own worth choose our own value from that Mm -hmm. and there's nothing that can be imposed upon you externally that makes sense (laughs) like Mm -hmm. and we should do away with all of it if we've created all of these structures for ourselves then like if it's not working for us, fuck it. We should undo all of the structures for ourselves. I'll let Jim take it from here. Yeah. Jim, any final thoughts on any of that? I'll say, um, that Alex's, uh, point so far was, was perfect. I think, especially just the part about empathy. I think reading, uh, this book conspiracy against the human race for those of you interested, uh, was enlightening in that, in that regard in particular, um, that, uh, like Alex already said, you, none of us asked for this. We were born without our permission. <laughs> we exist in this world uh, without um, without meaning to. 
And I think the things, the political assumptions that people make that someone deserves the conditions they're in, all of that, that is a result, that pernicious belief that colors individual and political um, beliefs, that uh, that is the result of a story we have mm-hmm. told ourselves, a story we have told ourselves um, and have allowed um, to be repeated and allowed ourselves to really, um, really start to believe. And you have to realize that's all it is. Mm-hmm. It's just a story. And that at the, underneath that story, behind that story is a reality. And the reality is that those people uh, are suffering. They didn't get there on purpose. They didn't uh, get there through their own choices. They were born into a world that served them those conditions that they live in mm-hmm. um, in front of you and that they need some help. And I think that's how we tie our uh, belief that life is malignantly, malignantly useless with our uh, our um, socialist veteran outlook. Okay. Well, I think that's a lot of good things there to wrap up with. So um, unfortunately, this now means that I have to torture you. So this is the <laughs> enlightening round. Enlightenment comes from within. So what I'm going to do here, for folks who are not familiar, I'm going to give you a list of things. You are going to tell me, are these things real or not real? Those are the only things you can say. You don't get to explain what you mean by real. You don't get to hedge <laughs> or anything like that. Um, so since there's two of you, um, one of you is going to have to take point. Uh, does anybody want to volunteer for who's going to go first? And, and we'll, have a, we'll have you both respond to each as we go through. All right. I'll... I yeah, I'll take out. point because I'll probably just have some really spicy, just like right. sophomore takes on everything. I, I'm heading this block. I mean, the advantage of taking point is that you don't have to then <laughs> second guess yourself after hearing the other person give their answers. So I think <laughs> okay, it's let's do this. <laughs> just trying to psych Jim out here a little bit. Okay, here we go. All right. So do I respond after every <laughs> after like item that you bring up? Yeah. So first, Alex and okay. Jim, you'll respond to each thing. So first of all, just and, to set a baseline here, right? I got to check. Do you believe that anything is real? Anything. Yes. Yes. Okay. Jim? Not real. You, wait, okay. you're saying nothing is real? <laughs> nothing is real. Okay. So you're <laughs> going to have to go through the whole list and we'll see if you can stick by that. And Alex can tell us which things are real <laughs> or not real. So here's how we do it. Ready? Okay. The yes. external world, real or not real? Real. Not real. Colors? <laughs> not real. Not real. Phenomenal consciousness? Not real. Real. <laughs> Oh, there we go. Uh, free will. Not real. Not real. Selves or persons. Not real. Not real. Genders. Definitely not real. Yeah, not real. Races. Uh-huh. I'm going to say real, but uh-huh. it sounds like a mind a trap. <laughs> yeah. Jim. Yeah, I'm going to say real to races. Okay. Species. Real. Uh, real. Okay. Um, morality. Not real. Not real. Rights. Real. Not real. Knowledge. <laughs> Not real. <laughs> Not real. God or gods. Not real. Not real. Society. Real. Not real. Mm-hmm. Money. 
Not real. <laughs> Not real. <laughs> Numbers? Uh, not real. Real. Fictional <laughs> fictional characters. Not real. Not real. Holes, like a hole in the ground. Mm. <laughs> real. Uh real, yeah. Okay. Chairs. Fuck. Not, not I get real. it. I get it. <laughs> <laughs> not real. <laughs> I said not real. Okay. Um, sandwiches. Not real. Not real. Science. Uh, not real. <laughs> I know you told us we can't hedge. I'm no. wrestling really. Um, <laughs> Real, yeah, real or not real? Okay, not real. Great. Uh, natural laws. Real, not real. Beauty. Not real. Real. Interesting. Love. Not real. Uh, real. <laughs> Causality. Real. Not real. No. And finally, time. Not real. Not real. Okay. You survived. How do you feel? <laughs> uh, uh, like a hypocrite. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the only way I can describe it. I, I, I kept questioning myself on every question. I was like, am I just thinking of my own conception of what science is? Or like, is yeah. there some objective conception of what science is i think i failed yeah. whatever that test was i think i failed it R- roughly speaking better or worse than boot <laughs> yeah. camp would you say better that was, oh. <laughs> yeah way okay. better i grew from this <laughs> fair enough fair enough um well alex jim this has been a lot of fun i really appreciate you coming on and talking about all these issues that i think do really are really important do you want to let folks know where they can find you one more time yeah check us out at pillow scream radio you can find us on spotify apple podcasts uh google podcasts we're also on twitter at pillow scream pond because there's a character limit on on twitter (laughs) and uh yeah come check us out if you're a veteran and you listen to embrace the void we might have some crossover in terms of some of the topics we like to talk about otherwise if you're just interested in veterans issues and how it relates to hopefully a better way we can structure our society. We spend a lot of time talking about that as well. And if you haven't noticed from, you know, our speaking on this podcast, we also curse a lot. So be prepared if you jump over. There's a, we certainly have a type of vibe around us, but it's, it's a function of what we've gone through. Is that a military thing, cursing? Yes. Holy shit. (laughs) Yeah. That was a joke. I've met people from the military. (laughs) all right guys well thanks so much it's been a lot of fun yeah thank you so much we appreciate it yeah likewise Aaron thanks as a human I was ill-equipped to thank you but as myself you have my everlasting gratitude thanks to our listeners and patrons who make the show possible thanks to our newest patrons Paul Barkley Fake Chuck Leonte and Guardian Balerin And thanks, as always, to our top-tier patrons, our Archon-level patrons, Lawrence Shielding, Dude, Fix the Vote, Jesse Rabinowitz and Brenda Goodman, Chad T, and CampQuest.org, CampQuest.org, CampQuest.org. 
and all of the thanks to our Archduke level patrons, Big Easy Blasphemy, Creepy Little Void Eyes, and Dave Maslich. If you'd like to support the show, please subscribe and leave us a five-star rating and a review on your podcast app. Follow us on Twitter at ETVPod. And if you notice a small void growing within you, consider supporting us financially at patreon.com slash embrace the void. Just $4 a month gets you early access to our episodes and our bonus ETV reading group content. Most of all, no matter what anyone else tells you, you are the void and the void is you. Thank you.